Views expressed on the Trailside Church Conversation podcast may not fully or accurately reflect the views of Trailside Church. What's up? Welcome to uh, the Trailside Podcast Conversations. My name is Pastor Sean Gaida, and I'm so excited to be sitting here with Jay, Dr. J. Aaron Simmons, uh, a professor of philosophy at Furman University, a friend of ours, um, actually, who drums with us sometimes as well. And I want to give him a chance just to, uh, Aaron, why don't you tell us who you are, how you got here, um, and what you're doing here at Furman University. Sure. Happy to. Um, thanks for having me on. Excited to do this and have a conversation with you. So, um, yeah, I am at Furman University. I've been here, um, I guess, eight years now. Mm-hmm. And before I came here, I used to be at Hendricks College out in Arkansas for a while. Taught at Swanee uh, for a little bit and also at Vanderbilt. Um, <clears throat> the, the area of work that I do is philosophy of religion, primarily. And so um, when I came here to Furman, uh, my wife and I got involved in, you know, religious communities and, uh, I, I do my best to try to help my thinking and my living kind of intersect, you know, as often as possible. Some days they do better than others. Um, and so my background actually is Pentecostal, um, the church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. That's, that's my domination denominational home. Um, it's a national denomination in Cleveland, Tennessee. It is. Yeah. International, (laughs) uh, international based in Cleveland. There's, there's, there's also a Maytag factory in Cleveland, but uh, other than that, not a whole lot. Um, Church of God kind of has a lockdown on the city. <clears throat> but yeah, we I, I'm a fourth-generation Church of God Pentecostal. Uh, my grandfather was a uh, Church of God pastor for 50 years. Um, my grandmother was actually a, a minister as well. Um, so yeah, the the connection then, you know, with Trailside, one of my good students uh, and advisees is music minister there, Riley Taylor, and um, that relationship, you know, he's like, oh, you play drums, huh? And it's like, <laughs> you want to do me a favor? I'm like, yeah, man, I'm in. And so it's been great to get to know you all and, and uh, happy to think with you today about things that matter. Yeah, so we want to have a conversation just about uh, philosophy and the life of a believer and why it matters and um, just kind of, I think it's something a lot of people, I wouldn't even say take for granted, probably just don't think about. Um, It's something that even in conversation before, but now especially the time we've had together, I've just learned should be immensely important because it literally kind of dictates everything we believe about everything. I think that's Um, right. I mean, in fact, the way you put it, I think is right that that we just don't think about it. I start all of my intro to philosophy classes with a book by David Foster Wallace called This is Water. It's a commencement address he gave, uh, I think it was 2005, up at Kenyon College, which is a you know, firm in, in Ohio. And he gave this address um, just a few years before he passed away, actually. And in the address, he basically says, look, the stuff we take for granted, you know, the obvious things, are often where the most important truths lie. Mm. And so it's only when we start uh, interrogating what others are taking for granted that that we kind of start seeing the world differently. And so I use it as the beginning of every philosophy class I teach as a way of trying to invite my students into understanding philosophy is not a, well, not only a professional discourse, a professional discipline that, you know, technical scholars with lots of degrees and lots of letters behind their names and, and you know, really bad fashion sense kind of get together <laughs> and think about these big questions. It's instead um, a way of life that, as I put it, you know, it, it's a way of life that puts questions where everybody else puts periods. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean, however, that we're stuck in questions, right? One of the, the problems about the way philosophy gets read is that it's you know useless because all it does is ask questions and what we need in the real world is some sort of you know pragmatic get down to business kind of thing. And my view as well, <clears throat> yeah, but when you're getting down to business, there's always a body who is finite and believes things that matter and hopes in certain ways and trusts other stuff and has relationships that either matter or that we hate and we're trying to get out of. Um, so it seems to me that questions of God, death, freedom, you know, meaning of life, that is the real world. And so thinking well about that stuff 
um, need not require that we read a bunch of, you know, Martin Heidegger or you know, Jacques Derrida, uh, which are fancy pants philosophers that I read a lot. But fancy instead, pants names as well. Fa- fancy pants, right? <laughs> it, it, there's a Monty Python skit that uh, mocks all of this, and it's really well done. <clears throat> the The thing that's important though, is we don't have to read all that. We don't have to spend our lives reading books, though I recommend it. Um, instead, we've just got to recognize that you know when we're you know at Chick Fil A and somebody's saying "my pleasure," that it probably isn't, <laughs> and and yet they're giving more to this interaction than I am. <laughs> and so th- th- that's that's a question about what matters in life. Well, and, and as a know, case to help you, your wife works at Chick-fil-A, my so wife, you're not a Chick-fil-A hater. My, I'm not. My <laughs> wife is a, a marketing director at Chick-fil-A. Um, and you have the, a cup I, next to you right I now. I have a cup right yeah. next to me. I'm, I'm a fan of how they approach things, and I think they do it really well. And so they're an example of, you know, people who somehow are able to get out of bed and I think they've created a kind of corporate culture this way. They get out of bed and <clears throat> say, Hey, let, let's go find a way to make this matter today. Mm. And so whether it's handing you a cup of coffee or a you know chicken nugget, like somehow they've successfully also created a space where they're inviting you into a life of meaning while doing it. Which is nuts. It's just, <laughs> just chicken. chicken. Yeah. And yet, uh, you know, that matters. And so when, when we think about, you know, uh, David Foster Wallace has this great example of, you know, being in that lane at, you know, Walmart or, uh, you know, Publix or wherever, grocery store, and you're in that lane where there's a person who, like, you know, can't find the coupon they're looking for. And as they're finding it, they're, something falls out of their pockets and it's spilled on the floor. And you're like, oh, my gosh, like come on person you've got 12 items and it says 10 like you are in my way (laughs) right and wallace is like what you may not know is that they just yesterday you know lost somebody that matters to them and Mm. or they may have just spent the last dime they had on medical bills and so that coupon is in fact what's making that dinner possible yeah and so he has this great line where he says what if it's not likely he says but it's possible what if they are not in your way but you are in theirs. <laughs> and for me, like that's philosophy. Philosophy is just that question mark in those moments where it is so easy to let the period just reign without, you know, without uh, interrogation, let it just yeah. stay obvious. Right? I, I'm such a big believer in that mentality too. I mean, we talk about this at church, even the idea that um, you never know what people are walking through mm-hmm. when you have that moment of interaction, whether that's, you know, I make fun of Woodruff Road a lot when I right. preach, and whether that's you know somebody flips you off on Woodruff Road who mm-hmm. knows that they have this immense pressure that they're yeah. dealing with a presence and a, a split family, or whether that could be like you said, just somebody who is giving every last dime mm-hmm. that they have, hoping that they're going to have enough or that they'll be able to get by for this yeah. week. Um, it's I mean it's a real thing. And yeah. I think it causes us to if it causes us to put um, human humanity back yeah. on people. That's right. And philosophy. Just is. I mean, etymologically, it just means the love of wisdom. Um, and one of the interesting things about that is that, at least in the Greek tradition, there there are um, other um, non-Western traditions of philosophy that are even older and, in some ways, more impressive when it comes to questions of human existence. <clears throat> um, but those of us sort of inheriting this Greek approach, I mean, Socrates says very clearly that, you know, wisdom is ultimately at, at some level recognizing you don't know it all. Mm. Uh, he says at one Preach. point, the only reason that he might be the wisest person in the world is because he knows he doesn't know it. <laughs> so there's something important about the love of wisdom inviting humility. Um, I, I often say of people that I, I hold in high regard that they display the humility um, that is only possible because of real confidence. And that they display the confidence that does not fall into arrogance because it's grounded in humility. And so humility is not, um, you know, oh, I must be wrong. I don't know anything. You know, it, it C.S. Lewis has a great line where he says, you know, humility is not uh, you know, thinking less of yourself. Yeah. Just thinking of yourself less. Right? Yeah. So one of my favorite quotes. Yeah. We, you know, we I love C.S. Lewis. So. We, we don't have to act like we're idiots. Um, there's nothing wrong. One of the great cultural problems I think we face right now is this idea that somehow being smart and being reflective and being articulate and being nuanced 
just means that you're disconnected or patronizing or, God forbid, an elitist. Be really careful about acting in light of what you think you do know. And, and I think, man, in the church... Um, I don't even have to ask the questions. You're just walking wow, right into it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the, the church is... God, I, I have a complicated relationship with church. Um, I, I don't think I have a complicated relationship with Christianity because I think Christianity is, is best understood as um, a narrative that has been handed to us about a model of God who did not think that the human condition was something to be overcome in salvation, but something to be entered into through incarnation. So it seems to me um, Christianity's got a lot to recommend it. Hmm. Um, contemporary, um, especially being raised in the South, in broadly evangelical church communities. Um, and like, I'm not sure what there is to recommend it most days because it seems to me it's just you know a lot of fear that gives rise to a lot of anger um, and then it ends up almost like making those criticisms of theism by people like Sigmund Freud and Friedrich Nietzsche just a lot more plausible because it does seem to be man you got a lot of folks that are scared of a lot of stuff and yeah. so as Obama said really smartly we run and cling to our gods and our guns. What well, it's not surprising that we do this. Alliteration aside, we do it because God becomes just another instance of needing to protect ourselves. Yeah. So as long as God's got it, I don't have to worry about it. But the problem is what we mean by God's got it is not an act of deep dependence and trust, um, but instead an act of absolute cowardice that then masquerades as arrogance um, and certainty and the need to make others be lesser so that you can maintain your status socially. And so making sure that everyone else is like you is just a way of making sure that no one challenges your position. And I think, unfortunately, God becomes kind of a name for reinforcing our own position yeah. way too often. Well, I was going to say that. that so there's two things I want to point out to our listeners. Like, first if, first off, uh, you are a believer, follower of Jesus. Absolutely. Um, and this philosophy ideal that goes with it is, I think, such a cool niche that you have the opportunity and are walking into with your book, which we'll talk about in a little while. But I think... You nailed it on the head. There are so many people who I think are more in love with the thought of God and what he provides than they are of actually following Jesus. Because if you follow Jesus, I I don't know that it looks like a lot of the evangelical church right now. No. I, I think the arrogance and the um, lesser of two evils mentality we see in politics and uh, all of those things, like, yes, we can trust that Jesus has the people, that like, he has placed people in positions for his purposes but that doesn't always mean, I mean, like if you go back through the Old Testament, God consistently put people as judges over people to judge right. them, right. to bring judgment to. And we, but you know, in the mentality of what we say and what we hear in churches of, um, oh, well, God is for your good only. And it's that equals this. And your good looks like what you want when you want it instead of God's glory and what he has composed this world to look like and to be yeah. and to walk in that. When we nuance, I guess, those two things mm. and really dive in. Those are two very different things. I, I don't know that one of those is not evangelical that we're right. teaching and one that is that we're scared of. No, I think that's right. I mean, there's two thoughts that jump to mind. One, <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, one of the most influential theologians on my thinking in life. Incredible. He, he has this di idea of religionless Christianity. Um, and what he means by that is, you know, here's a guy who's living in, in the, the ascendancy of National Socialism in Germany um, rampant cultural anti-Semitism. Hitler yeah. comes to power. Cultural anti-Semitism that's giving rise then to active, oppressive, um, you know, you, trauma, right? You know, the, the Holocaust is beginning. <clears throat> and what he watches is the German church to which he had given his life basically um, become complicit in this. Mm. And... He famously, um, you know, splits off, becomes part of the Confessing Church, which is sort of this um, church splinter that is refusing to become just a tool uh, in the National Socialist toolbox. And he starts being very critical. 
not just of National Socialism, of Hitler, but he starts becoming very critical of the church, that their failure to be the church. Mm. And in the context of all this, I mean, we, we then make sense of his distinction of cheap grace and costly grace. And he has this great line where he says, you know, there is only costly grace offered in Christianity. There is no cheap grace. And costly grace, he says, is the grace that says, come follow me, you know, to the cross. <laughs> um, and this is made even the more. The whole statement. The whole statement. There, yeah. there isn't just come follow me. You know, we, we, we like in, in churches in which I've grown up, we like claims like come follow me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. We like that stuff. We like, you know, I've come to give you joy and more abundantly and, and you know, abundant life and, and freedom to the captives and all this. We like the way that sounds, but we don't understand typically is the idea that the God who says it, the model of God presented to us is one um, who, who in shame and scorn actually is executed as the most marginalized among a social space. <clears throat> the best way to understand this is James Cone has an amazing book, um, famous black liberation theologian who I also am very influenced by. Cone has this book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree, <clears throat> where he argues that until we start seeing Jesus as a black man lynched in a tree by the powers of a supremacist logic that says we are elevated above you, is that until we understand that that is the narrative that Christianity presents us, we will never be able to understand what a friend of mine, uh, Jonathan Wilson Hartgroves, in the new book calls the legacy of slaveholder religion. And that legacy of slaveholder religion is the legacy that dominates white American, especially Southern evangelical commitments. And unless we're able to own that, we will only ever try to live into cheap grace. But that means it's just not Christianity. <clears throat> so the second thought then is <clears throat> we what I would say is we've lost the ability. Um, we, again, making it very specific, um, predominantly white evangelical American Southern churches, um, you know, the, the group who continues to be roughly 85 to 90% a lockdown vote for, you know, the Republican party, right? That commitment. And I don't care if you vote Republican or Democrat, but the idea that you would be assumed as a lock because the way that your religion has been shaped by a very particular political engagement, <clears throat> that's slaveholder religion. That's re yeah. reinforcing the powers of this world, right? It's messy. <clears throat> so <laughs> we've lost the ability for prophets to speak because we think what prophets look like are people who write books about the end times and scare us on, you know, TBN and then freaking buy airplanes with the donations coming from scared old people contributing to this who want to make sure that we somehow avoid, you know, the second coming of, of whatever, right? Now, you've heard me preach, so you, you just know that's a hot topic in the, my life. This <laughs> is a mess, man. The, the, that's not <coughs> prophecy. What prophecy was about, if we go back and look, man, the prophets rarely are talking about you know, the doom and gloom and destruction. What they're talking about is, look, King, you're failing to understand the justice that will roll down like waters. Mm. Look, you know, religious leader, you have failed to understand the life that you've been called to. Yeah. <clears throat> so right now, William Barber is a prophet in American Christianity. <clears throat> Dude's walking around saying, I will not sit down and acquiesce to the power structure that is continuing to say we'd rather have walls than offer hands of hospitality. <clears throat> the widow, the orphan, the stranger can also be from El Salvador or Mexico. Right now, that's not an option in the way that the supremacist logic by which the power structure of predominantly white Christianity understands itself operates. We've got to challenge that and speak yeah. up to that. But we speak up to it in the name of Christ, not not suggesting that this is somehow a liberal agenda against good Bible-believing Christians. No, this is, in fact, what it means, in my opinion, you know, like Stanley Hauerwas, to take the Bible seriously. <clears throat> it means that we are then interrogating the fact <clears throat> that very, very, very few churches 
right now, could the pastors honestly say yes to the following question? If a, a five-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. were being raised in your kid's program and listening during his youth to your sermons, would he have become the man he became? Hmm. If we can't say yes to that, we, we have a problem in our churches. Uh, and and totally right agree. now, we are more likely to say, <clears throat> well, the, the person who wants to be the successful businessman and, you know, uh, almost always man, by the way, we also don't think well enough about the way gender functions as also a, one of those idolatries that reinforce a particular kind of supremacist logic. Um, we, we aren't saying, how can we open ourselves to the radical critique that Christ would offer were Christ to stand in the back of our services. And in fact, I think most cases what we would do is have our ushers see him out because he'd probably be very disruptive. And instead, <laughs> we, we want to make sure that, you know, he, he dresses the right way and fits in just right. And when we say no perfect people allowed, <clears throat> what we mean is so long as you aren't going to ask questions about our politics, leave our conservatism alone and don't ask questions about our theology because these are, quote, non-negotiables. Rather than recognizing what has become non-negotiable has been a product of a long and complicated negotiation between power and people in privilege, hmm. figuring out how to do that. That's <clears throat> different than what we find in, in the religion of you know, the black churches and the Korean Pentecostal churches and the Hispanic churches that are still making sense of God as a God who liberates instead of making sense of God as a God who reinforces the liberation of you at the cost of others. Mm. I, I think those are all great points. And I, something that, you know, one thing that we've been able to do as a church plant is we don't have a lot of those. Well, we don't, not a lot. We don't have any of those, uh, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Groups or power people to answer to, um, to say, hey, Yes, you can be a church, but but here are some things of how you're right. going to do that. Right. And actually being able to come freely and think of like, hey, what is this? What do we want a church if we get back to the bare bones? Mm-hmm. And I know there's some kind of ideal idealist theology that churches have, like, oh, we're going to get back to the Acts church. Right. And well, no, you're not because you're right. not under the same concepts and grievances that the Acts church was under. Well, and also um, nobody takes seriously the way they should. <clears throat> the fact that the Acts Church says, sell everything you have among you and care for the needs of those within you so that no one is without in your community. We have, I haven't seen a church that's pulling that off right now. Well, we're much too worried right? about our futures and our investments. <clears throat> we we got to make sure our 401ks are built yeah. and that, you know, that, that the, the extended warranty is on the new cars. And, you know, which there's, there's nothing wrong with that as such. But it's a problem when, in fact, we will go out of our ways to ensure that our own security is not threatened, even if it means being closed off to the need of others. Yeah. And, and that's the stuff where for me, um, you know, I remember, uh, uh <clears throat> it's funny. I, I went to a church a long time ago. Um, I've written about it in various ways. I refer to it as church X in some articles of mine, since I, I don't ever want to throw shade in specific ways. <clears throat> um, and it was, during the Obama uh, first campaign, 2008, 2007, I remember wearing a Yes We Can <laughs> uh, sticker when I went to church. You liberal. Right? <laughs> so I remember this one pastor came up to me, a big, big mega church, you know, 10,000 plus people and multi-services and on and on. So not Trailside. <laughs> this wasn't Trailside uh, <laughs> yet. It wasn't Trailside 2018. Maybe Trailside 2025. But <clears throat> I walked in and this guy walks up to me and he says, oh, Bob the Builder. Yes, we can. <laughs> And, and I, I wasn't sure whether to respond sort of in charity or laugh at him, right? Or it was just so staggering. And, and I Because an adult him, male would have a sticker for Bob the Builder. An adult male was wearing a Bob the Builder. <laughs> and the, what it reflected was how absolutely <coughs> unintelligible it was that someone at this 10,000-plus member church could be possibly supporting a Democrat for president. And, and in Arkansas, a Democrat black man for president. Like, th- mm. this was complicated. And I said, no, sir. Um, it's a, a sticker for Obama-Biden. And he said, whoa, I don't know about getting political in church. 
And I said, sir, the problem is that you already are. Mm. But you're unable to make sense of the way that you have allowed a very particular political influence that has been shaped in explicit terms for the last 30, 40, 50 years. And even way back beyond that, back to the Second Great Awakening. I mean, you know, the revivalist Billy Sunday used to, at the end of his services, wave an American flag from the the altar. Part of altar calls, in fact, were generated in order to register people to vote. Yeah. (laughs) So people don't, and people have no idea. They don't get it. And and, And, I mean, and I want to say too, that's not uh, at the cost of an altar call being a bad thing. No, that's just. it speaks so much to the to things act, we do. Well, to act like we are somehow non-political when we're just preaching Jesus. Yeah. No, your Jesus is already a complicated, negotiated product of a history of politics. Um, I mean, just as one example, I encourage listeners to um, check out the work of Randall Balmer, an amazing um, sociologist and historian. Um, <laughs> he has done some really impressive archival work and shown that, in fact, um, the contemporary religious right, which the narrative we inherit, right, is that it's about abortion mm-hmm. and that this is galvanized people because who wouldn't stand against, you know, the murder of innocent babies, et cetera, et cetera. That's a compelling narrative. That's a story that motivates a lot of political support. The problem is it's not really true. <laughs> Turns out it was segregation and the requirement to desegregate at schools like Greenville's own Bob Jones University that caused a need for a very um, neo-fundamentalist sect of um, evangelical Christians to articulate themselves in a way that would galvanize them in a particular invented culture war. Like meaning to bring people into the religious side by a political aspect. And not lose them politically mm-hmm. by thinking their religion was able to be more complicated than they perceived. So it turns out it was... Well, yeah, know, which isn't an argument for against abortion. No, it's an argument for how we got to we, the place we, we have. We can have all kinds of views on abortion for all kinds of really important theological reasons. The fact that we think it is theologically obvious is the problem. Because it's never been theologically obvious. It wasn't even all that big of a theological issue for the very communities that now take it to be the single most important voting issue. It wasn't that important back in 73 when Roe vs. Wade passed. What happened was <clears throat> desegregation law was perceived as a threat to religious liberty at colleges like Bob Jones University and other places. <clears throat> and that perceived threat was then something that, oh, well, we can't have this. They're challenging our religious liberty. Who? But... Going down on the sword of we want to make sure that you know African Americans can't come to our community, that's that's probably a sword you don't want to go down on because it's not going to get the same kind of popular support in in public ways. So you just find another way. So you to find make another way to make come. that happen. How do you do it? <laughs> you create a voting block that then will articulate themselves in a particular way. So the emergence of the religious right and the moral majority in the late seventies was in fact, it was a decision to make abortion the issue because abortion played better than anti-civil rights. And you want to go even one step further. The reason that they decided then to align with the Republican Party as opposed to the Democratic Party, because traditionally Democratic votes were in fact more um, evangelically split, was because Jimmy Carter, right, gets elected. Time Magazine, cover of the uh, Time Magazine says, Year of the Evangelical, when he gets elected, 76. (laughs) Well, he supported the Equal Rights Amendment, which was lobbying for things like fair pay and equal rights for women. That was the divisive issue for the same neo-fundamentalist movement. They said, no, 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 no. We do not support equal rights for women. We do not support civil rights for non-whites. And because those were the actual motivating issues and they've perceived that as a threat to religious liberty, how then do you rally people worried about the state oppressive apparatus coming after their religion? you got to find an issue that's going to be a better sell than those. So abortion became the issue. Now, again, this isn't at all to say that abortion is an easy moral question. Right. It's simply to say the 
when we learn our history, when we learn that um, uh, Francis Schaeffer, right, a, a, a Christianity Today says that he is our St. Francis. <laughs> this is a big guy. Doesn't have quite the press agent that Lewis has had, but he's an important <laughs> thinker. He wrote in 1970 a book called Pollution and the Death of Man, which was all about the evangelical requirement to be the most proactive in environmental stewardship and fighting environmental degradation and climate change. 1970. Wow. He says, in fact, quote, <clears throat> When it comes to the environment, I side with the hippies. Now, why that's important for us now, it doesn't mean much, right? But then that would have been kind of like an evangelical pastor today saying, when it comes to the importance of human dignity, I will side with, you know, the defenders of uh, equal rights for gay marriage. It would be that kind of thing. It was those people who are threatening our moral conscious. Hmm. He said, I'm with them. Because morality is a more important Christian requirement than our reinforcing of our status and our power and our social position. It's an amazing concept. Uh, I, I didn't think it was this big of a deal when I said it, but um, to expect people who are not believers to act like and hold the moral code of a believer, mm-hmm. to challenge that is mind-blowing for people. Yeah. And it's like, listen, I, I don't expect you if you don't subscribe, <clears throat> if you don't subscribe to what I do, theologically, right. morally, you know, and and all the inferences you can pull from that, and everything that I shouldn't have the expectation you're going to think and desire the way I do, right. and I, and I I do think there's something to be said for protecting that divide so that mm-hmm. divide stays clear. Well, it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> Stanley Harawas uh, says that you have to let the world be the world for the church to be the church. Exactly. That's, that's what I'm talking about, that divide. interesting claim. Because what we think, uh, and I think it's, this is also played out in uh, uh, a scholar I'm a big fan of, um, Gregory Boyd, has a book called The Myth of a Christian Nation. It's a fantastic book. I would and love to read that. I'm going to write that It's down. actually started as sermons. It, it's a sermon series he gave at a huge church in Minnesota where he is uh, pastor, and he lost over half his church. Because all he said, this was the big thesis. <laughs> God explicitly calls us to a kind of pacifistic approach to human engagement. And so the militarism that we have grown comfortable with as American Christians is actively anti-Christian, he says. Now, again, there are Christians who disagree. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr was a, a Christian realist who had a different kind of view on this. But the idea was, he simply said, this is the ideal of Christian living. And then he said the idea that there is some sort of um, God's politics that would then make it easy to align oneself relative to political party options instead of we are on the side of the widow, the orphan, the stranger. Hmm. So let's figure out who then is representing them, right? He says anything beyond that is in fact idolatry and allowing God's message to be converted to a political message such that the savior you're looking for becomes the person that you're voting for and lost half his church. And what happened, of course, was he got a different half right back because the idea was he said, I can't stand up here and want to reinforce my own power by risking by not willing, willing to risk losing my congregants. He Hmm. says, what you have called me to do, God, is to say what prophetically needs said. And speaking truth to power is what prophets have done for a really long time, way back into the Hebrew Bible. And yet we don't have a lot of pastors speaking truth to power when they're sitting around in the halls of the White House, shaking hands with people and wanting to make sure that they're, you know, getting good pictures for the congregants that then will be excited to go to a church where their pastor gets to sit down with the president. Hmm. You know, one of my favorite things, there's a lot of critique for uh, Obama's former pastor, William Wright, and and rightly so. He he has said some complicated things. And yet, um, I'm actually in many ways, quite a fan of a lot of what he has said. And one of my favorite things he says um, was, he said, before Obama got elected, he said, look, you know, he said, I I can't endorse a presidential candidate. He said, that's not my role as a pastor. He said, I will say, yes, we can. (laughs) But then he says, I'll tell you this, though. He said, you know that I'm friends with Barack. He said, I'll tell you this. The day he gets elected, 
I will celebrate with him as a friend. The next day, I will be his biggest critic because the church must speak truth to power regardless what that power looks like. Mm, that right there, I story, have man. not seen from people who, in fact, were willing to overlook their own moral commitments to vote for somebody who might allow a particular kind of policy to be enacted morality you know goes out the back door in the name of some sort of morality that that's hard to to convince people of your moral fiber yeah it's it's really hard to think that things like sexual assault and and explicit um dismissal of the bodies of women as significant um it seems real hard to convince people that that this is in fact you know to be forgotten because yeah. you are pro life. Say, it's like, but well, wait a minute. The the whole point was if we are consistently pro life, that we are for the widow, the orphan, the stranger. We we are recognizing that humility goes with hospitality. That we are invested in a a refusal to have our God be used as simply a power play in slaveholder religion, that this is not what we're going to do, not what we're about. Hmm. That costly grace is just something I don't see enough of us within white Southern American evangelicalism. I just don't see enough of us saying, you know, no further. And this is why in many ways I no longer identify as evangelical, um, which was interesting. Recently I said this on Facebook and some of my evangelical friends from England got very frustrated. You're like, dude, lots of white evangelicals are not y'all people. <laughs> like, the, white evangelicalism doesn't have to be American nationalism. Yeah. Right? And I was like, So your disassociation is more with the cultural context a here in the South. A cultural frame, right. And so I yeah. then had to go back. That's why I've been very careful not to say evangelicals or Christians or whatever. Yeah. It, it's a very particular tradition with a very particular history. And it's and it's weird. Um, I, for example, have grown up Pentecostal, and it's fascinating that in many Pentecostal traditions, <laughs> um, women are still not allowed to hold uh, the highest offices. And in many Pentecostal tradition, white Pentecostal traditions, um, there, there are still very deeply, deeply, deeply segregated congregations. You know, whether intentionally or not, that this is still how we're somehow comfortable living out our faith mm. is surrounded by a bunch of white people. Right. Here's why that's problematic. The history of American Pentecostalism goes back <clears throat> to things like Azusa Street. Well, Azusa Street was a revival that happened in Los Angeles by William Seymour, who was a black man who, in fact, had gone to seminary but had to stay in the hall because they wouldn't allow a black man to sit in the con in the classroom with whites. Hmm. That's where American Pentecostalism finds its revival roots, yeah. is in a social justice-motivated black voice saying, God doesn't care about my racial status, but God does care about your racism. So the philosophy within, <clears throat> within the Christian context isn't, uh, and I, I hope whoever, like our listeners hear this, it, it's not a political statement. It's no. a, how do we get to where we are now? And because these problems are, are now sh kind of rearing their ugly head and we're seeing this hard divide between, I mean, races, between mm -hmm. denominations, um, to a point where n not that, not that the gospel is uh, ineffective by any stretch of the imagination, but that it's, it's ineffective in crossing the borders because of the way that, that we represent it to people. Absolutely. Because we're and, political rather than And spiritual. I wouldn't want to say that what I'm talking about is what the majority of something like Christian philosophy looks like. In fact, sure. the vast majority of Christian philosophy in the last 20, 30 years <clears throat> looks like very, very complicated technical debates about, you know, modal ontological versions of particular arguments for classical theism and what predicates are possible to be predicated <laughs> of a perfect being like, you know, possible world debates about necessity and contingency. Like the Which stuff that, fun to us, like, man, <laughs> I can go all day on that. They, 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 that's what most Christian philosophy has been. Um, I'm a critic of a lot of that. And a lot of why I'm a critic of it is because I think actually philosophy is not best done when it's confessional in the sense of starting with the authority structures that operate in the church or ecclesial communities. I don't think those authority structures should operate in the same way in my professional discourse as a philosopher. <clears throat> I think they should operate if I'm a theologian, 
I'm not a theologian, I'm a philosopher. So the, the thing I see is none of what I'm talking about is professional philosophical discourse by professors. What I'm seeing, what I'm talking about is that David Foster Wallace putting question marks where some periods have long lasted. It's interrogating what we take for granted. It's saying, hey, own where you stand. Wallace has this great line where he says, the default settings from which we operate may be good places to stand. The problem is that they remain unconscious. That's a great. Right? Yeah, like it's not that you can't put the period back there. It's no. just you just need to know why you have what, arrived there. I, I gave a TED talk, TEDx talk uh, last year, and I said, "Look, you will not be known for where you put question marks. You'll be known for where the periods eventually came down in your life." So. Nothing about being philosophical in the church, out of the church, whatever. This way of life that I'm advocating is about an awareness that makes possible not seeing the person with whom you disagree as immediately immoral or irrational. Mm -hmm. And right now, those are the only two options. And so when we see, oh, so if somebody is pro-choice and claims to be Christian, that doesn't make them not a Christian <laughs> or immoral, it might make them complicated in relation to a social history that I have just begun to make sense of, right? <clears throat> if, if, if we take seriously the idea that, hey, um, thinking about diversity and having pastors that are talking about Black Lives Matter, not as a political statement alone, but understanding religion is always already politically spaced. The books that we've inherited, in fact, even as the canon, have political histories and the way that they occurred. Martin, like Protestantism wouldn't have happened in many respects if Martin Luther weren't protected by a prince. Which is interesting because he didn't, that wasn't even his purpose. But dude would have gotten himself killed. Yeah. So the fact is to act like we can somehow be non-political is for me just to act like we're not paying attention and privilege. A lot of people talk about privilege these days and it, you know, ignites fury in some and frustration in others. But privilege is simply this. It's the ability not to have to pay attention. Privilege is the ability to take things for granted about your perspective as obvious. Hmm. So when we say like, well, what is white privilege? The example I give is it's the idea that um, very, very few white people have gone in for a job interview and worried that they would be judged for their race, that they might be thought to be a drug dealer because they were white. That's not a thing that many of us have experienced. Well, that's not condemning to the white person. Of course not. And that, I think that's the, the whole, because I've it's thought a lot about that. It, yeah, it's not saying like, oh, well, you're wrong for being... How, how many men have walked into a, again, think a job interview, many men have walked into a job interview and thought, oh, I wonder if what I'm wearing will make them think that I am being too sexually provocative. It's I not mean, a I've, thing. I've thought that. <laughs> Most of us are not the, the bastion of, of <clears throat> attractiveness that you are, Sean. But the idea is it's not because there's anything wrong with not thinking it. The problem is not thinking it reveals to us that we are not paying attention to what others are having to think. What have I done as a white male, as a Christian, as a able-bodied white male Christian? <laughs> what, what have I done to make it such that the taken-for-grantedness of my ease of interacting in the world comes at the cost of others having to navigate the world in deep deep complications, marginalizations, oppressions. That's the question. So I have a huge question that just hit me that goes with that, that you may have just opened in my brain. Um, and, and with all of those things in consideration with Christian evangelicalism, evangelicalism um, and the missional mindset of, of our church and of, of yeah. I, I think what every church says they are, but what many churches falter at because they're comfortable. You know, when you're a young church plant, you don't have the opportunity right. to be comfortable. Um, but what would it look like? It's hard to put comfortable chairs out when you got to take them back up at the end of <laughs> yeah, service. Exactly. I, I get you. Yeah. Um, what would it look like? And, and maybe you can help me, uh, help me understand this a little better. But when you talk about being missional and yeah. evangelical and bringing the gospel to people 
for the sake of eternity, yeah. how important do you feel it is? And maybe what can the Christian church shift yeah. to think in that concept of like, okay, if you remove all those things, and we talk about privilege, not in the political mindset, but mm-hmm. if you remove those things we take for granted and utilize that to mm-hmm. then apply your mission to people, yeah. just people, yeah. uh, what would be a major shift in that and how the Christian culture works, how missional yeah. culture works? I mean, what it's a good question. Like? And I'm actually glad you asked it. Um, <clears throat> let me make clear, which I hope would be obvious to everybody, um, all the listeners, but nothing I'm saying should be confused for your views or the views of Trailside. Um, my, except for the part where me being a bastion of, uh, except the bastion of, of attractiveness, maybe that, maybe that works. But the, the thing that, cause I'm, I'm going to say something here that I know is unlikely your view. Um, so when we think of evangelicalism, this is what my friends in Britain were reminding me, and, and I know these things, and it was my mistake to not be more nuanced when I discussed it uh, on Facebook. <clears throat> uh, when we think of evangelicalism in David Bebbington's terms, it, it becomes basically reduced to a, a focus on you know, the cross, um, on the Bible, <clears throat> on um, a kind of conversion, and a... Um, uh, an engagement, a sort of you know, missional engagement. And so these, these foci become a sort of theological foci that make possible like Catholic evangelicals, right? That would make possible Orthodox evangelicals in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. This is what then would cut across white and black evangelicalism, would, would cut across Protestant and mainline, etc. Uh, evangelical and mainline denominations and Protestantism, etc. Why that's important is because when we recognize how dynamic and plural our own traditions are, it allows us to make our conversation similarly dynamic. Mm-hmm. When we think that our tradition has to be restrictive and monolithic and self-protectionist, um, we then, not surprisingly, start becoming fans of isolationist, nationalist rhetoric in our political tone, in our discourse. Well, in that's our, how you end up with First Baptist Dallas. Th- these are really unfortunate outcomes. Yeah. Um, but they're not unreasonable when you trace the theological self-protection to a kind of isolationist uh, uh, outcome, right? So how then do we become missional? Well, I would say that one of the problems is we've got to be very careful not to allow our missional commitment not to be aware of its own imperialistic heritage and its cultural imperialism that then underwrote in many ways you know, the legacy of slavery is a thing, again, that was for lots of years justified by a missional imperative. Now... Well, that's a problem of putting culture onto faith instead well, of allowing that to be. I there. think that's right. I mean, again, I'm I'm always going to say that I don't think these things can be parsed out easily. So I think sure. there is no faith that's not culturally located. Sure. But we should be really careful not to allow our economic interests in having, you know, a lot of bodies working in ways that I then don't have to because that's a thing I think I'm better than. Hmm. It, it becomes easier to have those bodies that then can make my wealth happen. Yeah. But pretty quickly, a commitment to um, a Christian narrative is going to make that problematic for me. So I've got to make sure my theology will justify this economic privilege and this status and this racism. And so that's where you In get way, these, like slavery did. Which, slavery yeah. did, right? <clears throat> so you ended up with, you know, quote unquote, Christian justifications for slavery on the level of a kind of um, eschatological, a fancy word just for you know, an end times vision of, hey, what salvation is about is about souls. So if you've got a, sal- a soul salvation, otherworldly eschatology, get the souls saved so they can get to heaven, even if it means putting their bodies in bondage now, but making sure that they hear about Christ. Notice how distorted and, in my opinion, immediately evil that becomes. Oh, yeah. Well, it's so, justification of your own desire instead of the actual gospel. And, and at the cost of the very bodies that Christ comes and, and models love toward. Yeah. So for me, the thought is once we say, look, we got to be real careful. Missional cannot mean a, a 
imperialism toward those whose cultures don't match our brilliance in terms of theology and economics. That's always going to be a dangerous road. And I think a road littered with um, traumas from history. Hmm. So once we recognize that, we've then got to say, so what kind of theory of salvation would we be articulating that would allow us to be disconnected from that kind of imperialistic justification? And for me, this is where, again, I think black liberation theology um, becomes really helpful, um, as does certain strands in medieval mystical theology. Because what they're going to invite us to recognize is, oh, it is the body where salvation happens. It's not irrespective of bodies, except in the sense that, you know, one's race or gender or, in my opinion, sexual orientation or whatever. Those become much less interesting because what God loves is the person. That, I think, is true. We are called to love people. I think that's just a good moral realist claim. I don't think you have to be Christian to hold that view. <clears throat> Not at all. In fact, I think yeah. most Christians are bad at holding this view for the reasons we've discussed. But instead, if we think, what if salvation is about caring for souls by recognizing that bodies are the only, only uh, space in which love can play out? I cannot care for your soul without caring for your body. Caring for your body. That's what I do. I totally agree. So then, in my opinion, how do we become missional? We stop thinking it's just about preaching, you know, the narrative of Christ. It instead becomes how do we embrace living toward the kingdom of God that Christ repeatedly said is now. It's here. My kingdom is come. It doesn't talk a lot about some out there eventual kind of thing. Yeah. It's here, right in front of you. At hand, as John Baptist would say. Bonhoeffer has this great line in a book, Life Together, where he talks about the cross of Christ. He said, if God is the light of the world and is, again, lynched on this tree, to quote James Cone, we look to the light. But what happens when you look at a light bulb, right? You can't look at it very you long. You get blinded, yeah. You get blinded. So what do you do? You realize it's the light that makes possible seeing everything else. So when you realize this, you can't stare at the light of the world. The light of the world opens you up to recognizing all these other needy people standing at the foot of the cross. Go ahead and say the C.S. Lewis line. <clears throat> I know you want to. Which one are you thinking? That I believe in the sun, not because I... Oh, yes. The God in the dock. Yes. Yeah. We, we believe in the sun, not because I see it, but because as a result of it, I see everything else. Beautiful. That's exactly right. And that move is the way I approach missions. So I am not a big conversion-y person. I actually, I don't talk that way. It's never my goal. I'm never, ever talking to people to get them converted to some sort of Christian anything. What I'm doing is trying to say, how is it that I can live out the trust that grounds me in a way that allows my life, hopefully, to make the embodied existence of others something that is not hindered by the privilege I refuse to take seriously and then work in light of. <clears throat> so should should we tell people about God? Well, maybe. I, I talk a lot about God because I'm a philosopher talking about philosophy of religion. Yeah. But better is I'd rather talk to people about what they consider ultimate and, and hear their stories and make sense of what it is that moves them and why they think goodness matters and what they take truth to be <clears throat> because they might be right. Well, I think this is why you and I get along so well because I'm, <clears throat> as I've stated for years and years, I'm very against the standing on street corners, handing out pamphlets and, quote, evangelizing. Yeah. Uh, the people, and I think that the the better concept, that the more, the more biblical concept, is for people to see the symptoms of a redeemed and regenerated heart, yeah. and then n- want to know what the symptoms lead to. Then it is to show them here's the antibody, go get fixed, and just assume that that'll make everything better. I think that's um, right. I mean, it's about the people. Well, and this is where I think that we might <clears throat> differ, which is entirely cool. It's why I like the dynamism of of Christian traditions. Um, I have, over the years, come to think that the traditional model of substitutionary atonement in any kind of exclusivist approach to religion um, is an unsustainable model. We would disagree there. Yeah. <clears throat> right. And, and <laughs> the reason that I think it's unsustainable is precisely because um, I think wherever there is good, I think God is moving and, and 
I think for me, the way God moves is in the story and person of Christ. Um, however, it, it, it has become unsustainable for me to think that, well, if I had grown up in Pakistan or, um, you know, certain parts of Korea or, you know, Siberia or whatever, like I would hold very different views about these things. That doesn't make my views false or true. Hmm. It just means that the cultural inheritance and background is so deeply impactful on the trust by which I then find my identity shaped that it is naive to act like Christian faith is about some sort of cognitive assent to a proposition that's been articulated to me. See, this is where we would need to I talk know about, about, that. about grace if we had time, but you have to get to class yeah. in a minute. Uh, we can, And we can maybe have a talk about yeah, that next we'll time, about common grace and Absolutely. all these beautiful things that I think answer that question that I'm sure you've thought about right. that we can Yeah, and my worry through, on that but, front, I mean, I'd just say quickly, is anything that makes me say... Oh, like Karl Rahner has this view of an anonymous Christian. And I think that's a different kind of imperialism. So I don't want to say of someone else that, oh, they're really Christian because look how good they are. <laughs> what, what I want to say is probably more like the following. Wow, if they're being super public about their Christianity, they're probably not being very good in their life. They're trying to mm. confuse us, right? I.e. people go on Facebook <clears throat> and say they're not about the drama. This this is tricky. Yeah. Um, one of my... One of my friends in the field, a guy named Peter Rollins writes really interesting books. He and I disagree on a lot of things. Um, he decided to make a tract you know, that you would hand out on street corners. And it's hilarious. He made one <laughs> and you open it up and it's a little like comic novel, right? I mean, graphic novel kind of thing. So you open it up and it's the pictures and the things you know, like the little tracks are. <clears throat> and it has the, you know, people who, who, um, you know, God comes down <clears throat> the people rejoice and celebrate and God leaves and it says, don't worry, you know, I'll, I'll come get you again. And then, so what they do is <clears throat> say, oh, the world's going to hell. It's awful. Everybody's you know, falling away from God. God, save us, save us, save us, get us out of this place. <clears throat> so God goes down and gets them all and brings them up to heaven and then says, <clears throat> all right, y'all have fun. I, I'm going to go down with my people. <laughs> and then comes back down to the earth to everyone who got left. And he says, no, because the story of Christ is a story that says, if you think you're somehow the chosen, you're the people who've got it figured out. Notice that would be unphilosophical. That's, that's Socrates' critique. Stop thinking you know it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Have the confidence of humility, not the cockiness of certainty. Um, and then we also see a Christ in the scriptures, a story of a God who doesn't try to bring us out of anything, but instead hops down with us and says, <clears throat> God with, right? Emmanuel, like the God who is with is the God who is redemptive. And so if that's right, my thought is <clears throat> I'd much rather be with the people and the people that God is with during, you know, Christ's history we're never the people hanging out in the churches. I.e. fit. Yeah. It the weren't Pharisees the faithful were the folks. Ones. Yeah. And so my, my view is, hey, um, let, let's, let's be missional in the sense that we are deeply devoted to what Kierkegaard calls becoming a Christian. Faith as a task for a lifetime. Hmm. Not a thing I got one day at youth camp and got baptized and <laughs> gave my life and hey, woo! Like... That's fine, too. And maybe it's life-changing. But I'm way less interested in what you're now saying yes to and way more interested in how that yes then becomes a life of investment and commitment. And that life of investment and commitment, to me, is rarely a life being invested in a bunch of propositions that are true about God, though I think those matter. That's the books I write. <laughs> but way more interested in a life invested being exploded in front of the people who my own history has continued to marginalize. How can I then displace my own status and my own belief in the face of the other that in fact, you know, I mean, it, it, it's fascinating the story of what you've done to the least of these you've done to me. Like for me, that's an invitation to universalism. It's a way of saying, hey, those who love Christ are those who are, in fact, exploding their own theological conception in the name of a God who said, I'll explode it for you. 
And for well, me, that that's that's worth thinking through. I'm, I'm a big believer. Uh, and something you said kind of hit me when we talk about going to youth camps and having a life-changing experience. I, I don't think it's life-changing if you're not willing to change your life for it. Uh, and I think right. that's that's a problem that we see a lot. But we are running out of time. You have to get the class, but I want to give you a chance. You have the book Christian Philosophy, Conceptions, Continuations, and Challenges yeah. coming out in, uh, within the next month, you said. Next month or so, yeah. It's coming out that. Uh, from Oxford University Press. It's a, a book I edited. I'm very excited about it. <clears throat> it's definitely a, a technical philosophy book. Um, so it's not going to be something that is um, probably going to be on an end cap in any Costco uh, you know, very shortly. But not with um, that thinking, it's not. <laughs> I, I, I need a better press agent. Um, the the thing that I like about this book is when I decided to put it together, I wanted to think about what counts as Christian philosophy and whether Christian philosophy is even a good idea for philosophers or for Christians. Mm-hmm. And so this book brings together some of the the big names, the the Alvin Plantinga's and Nicholas Wolterstorff's and. Uh, Merrill Westfalls and, and and really big big name philosophers, <clears throat> um, but it also tries to interrupt the hegemony or the the again monolithic or or reductive version of this philosophizing. So it also has some really exciting um, work by <clears throat> people like Kyla Ebels Dugan, by Megan Sullivan, um, Kevin Tempe has an amazing essay talking about um, Christian philosophy and disability advocacy. Wow, and thinking about how, unless we're willing again to interrupt the privilege of ableism, that so attends our Christian theology, we haven't yet understood what it means for Christ to, you know, see the people who in fact are lame. So uh, it's got some interesting stuff. It's also got um, several essays by some of the biggest name uh, atheist philosophers in the, in the world: uh, John Schellenberg, uh, Graham Oppie, people I respect and take very seriously. Um, it's, it's got a great essay by a Jewish philosopher, uh, Peter Oaks. And what's so neat about the book, I think, is it, it draws on different philosophical backgrounds and traditions, um, different Christian backgrounds and traditions. It's got, you know, Catholic and high Protestant reformed type of stuff. It's got um, Pentecostal, uh, you know, it, it, it's trying to say Christianity is not a thing that is easily referred to as a stable signifier. It's complicated. That doesn't erase any kind of unity that we want to appeal to. It simply says don't confuse the unity by which one's church identifies itself as Christian with, you know, what Christianity is, right? Um, Just going to this church or that church is not the same as being part of the Christian community. And so this book tries to interrogate that. Um, and, and I dedicated it to one of my philosophical mentors who passed away uh, a couple years ago. And I dedicated it to him because um, he introduced me to the work of Soren Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard, I say often, um, his work helps me be able to continue to call myself a Christian. Because Kierkegaard, at the end of his life, kind of like Peter Rollins, was, he was actually standing on street corners handing out pamphlets that were critical of the established church. And his <laughs> He's whole, a bad dude. whole thought was, he says, to bring Christianity back to Christendom. So as soon as Christianity becomes about a kind of stabilizing power, I just don't see it being about the God who said, I'm going to go be born in a manger. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be lynched on a tree. I'm with the widow, the orphan, the stranger. It, it, it you know, Paul talks about it being important that God didn't think it was important to maintain God's own status, but instead became as a servant, right? Humble, the idea of kenosis. So this book, the hope about it is uh, Christian philosophy from Oxford. It's, it's an attempt to interrogate our assumptions as philosophers, as professionals, when it comes to what we take for granted, even about our own discourse called Christian philosophy. And a lot of disagreement in this book. Um, I can say in the reviews, when I first sent the manuscript off, um, one of the reviewers referred to me as, in fact, uh, a heretic and rejected the book from publication because he said that I was too heretical. Um, my, my response back to the press was this just illustrates the importance of why this book needs to happen, that we can accuse a philosopher of being a theological heretic and that count as an objection to philosophy. That's not OK. <laughs> and thankfully, Oxford uh, supported 
the the direction that I was wanting to to go, and the book um, is not trying to make any particular statement, but simply invite a conversation. I think has been foreclosed by the assumptions that operate. That wow. that lady trying to get her coupon is in my way. It might be the opposite. Well, that's awesome. Well, I'm I'm excited to to read it and to fight through it. I'd encourage anyone who who hears this and uh, wants to think on a more deeper level. That was very wonderful grammar, more deeper, uh, to, to check it out here in the next few weeks. And we'll obviously put it out yeah. uh, where we put everything out with Trailside. But um, thank you for taking time. And uh, I want to, uh, again, just point out how important I think it is to have conversation like this and that um, it's okay to, uh, to fight through these things. And, man, what a day it'll be when we can uh, take the complexity that we've put onto, onto Jesus and take it off and just... Mm-hmm be about Jesus and see what that looks like. So, And um, and I think all of us, this is what medieval uh, apophatic and mystical theology helps us realize, all of us are probably wrong. And so Kierkegaard has this great line where he says, it is an edifying, the the Danish is better translated as an upbuilding. It's an upbuilding thought to realize that in relation to God, we're always wrong. So there's something important about saying, I'm doing the best I can. God help me. Instead of saying, God's on my side, now give me my gun, give me my <laughs> office, give me the Supreme Court, let's go handle... No, that, that's just not the God that I see in Scripture. May we always be about Jesus and not ourselves. But uh, to that point, onward with our day. Onward with our day. Thank you so much, uh, Sean, for having me. And to any of the listeners, I, I appreciate uh, you listening. Feel free to reach out to me. I'm, I'm available by email. Um, yeah, tell Aaron. us how to contact you. Yeah, it, it's just Aaron, A-A-R-O-N dot Simmons, S-I-M-M-O-N-S at Furman, F-U-R-M-A-N dot E-D-U. That's Aaron dot Simmons at Furman dot E-D-U. And you're also welcome to check out uh, my website, which is just um, J Aaron Simmons dot wordpress.com um, and you can also check out a blog that I uh, co-host with an Anglican pastor friend of mine Seth Kane um, which is uh, called philosophy goes to church and so it's philosophy goes to church dot wordpress.com so um, seriously if I can be a resource to anyone uh, I'm happy to do it and and in most cases like my students will tell you um, I I rarely think that what I'm saying is the only option, but I think it's important to think there are good reasons for the options we hold. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much. And uh, until next time, on with our... Thank you for listening to another edition of the Trailside Church Podcast. Like us, subscribe, and we will see you next time.